This obviously is an important topic. Uh, I, I am, I'll say up front, I'm, I'm disappointed that we don't have a representative from DHS or HHS CDC here. I, I spoke with those folks. Um, I thought I hadn't convinced to come, but uh, apparently they're doing a, an all-Senate briefing uh, at 1130. Uh, and I understand that kind of the demand on their time in terms of briefing senators, but I think it's extremely important the public understands these things as well. Uh, I have all kinds of questions. Um, and what I told the, the witnesses here is we're not going to confine your opening statements to two minutes or five minutes. I, I want you to uh, provide the public information. Um, the main reason I call this roundtable is just to put things in perspective. Um, the federal government plays a role here. It, we don't want the federal government to underreact, but we also don't want the federal government to overreact. Uh, I think that the probability that they're going to get it just right is zero. Um, but I think it's important that we discuss what are the considerations and the actions that we do take, what actions will be effective, what actions will be largely be ineffective. And I, you know, I can see from, I know a number of you have already published articles and you've had that kind of discussion. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I want to get on the table. I want this roundtable to lay out the information that the public needs to begin considering, realizing there, there are no set answers yet. We just, we just don't know all kinds of things, but there's plenty that we do know. And so that's, you know, let's, let's acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of unknowns in this process yet, but information in the public realm is better than not having the information out there. I think we're seeing the difference right now between our, our democratic open press system versus China, where I think because of that closed system, it's probably getting close to out of control there, where we have the real possibility by, by providing the public the information they need to have, uh, providing health professionals, people are aware, they can take hopefully precautionary measures uh, inside hospitals where you have severe cases, uh, we can limit the spread of this as best as possible. So uh, I have an opening statement, I'll just enter the record, I'll turn it over to Senator Peters. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, I'll be brief too. Thank you to all of our witnesses uh, for, for being here and I'll just share uh, uh, my disappointment as well uh, with you, Mr. Chairman, that we don't have CDC and Homeland Security, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a, a hearing coming up that will uh, bring them in because I agree uh, getting this information out in the public is really important. Uh, when folks don't know something, you can have a lot of misinformation getting around there and kind of gin up fears. Uh, we don't want to do that. We want to treat this with the seriousness that it deserves, but make sure there's full transparency as to what's happening and, and how we're, we're dealing with it. I think it's, uh, this is an important issue for us uh, to address because this is not going to be the, the last time where you have a, a, a disease uh, spreading uh, fairly uh, quickly. Pandemics are part of human history. They've been throughout human history. They're going to continue. Uh, there's some that may argue that they become more complicated uh, as time goes on and as we become more of an interconnected world as well. And so I think we have to be thinking about uh, this uh, in, the, in the long term, making sure our resources are there. I certainly was disappointed uh, in the President's budget that shows a pretty substantial cut to programs related to pandemics at a time when we may be on the verge of, uh, of a pandemic, uh, shows that that is short-sighted. And we've got to be thinking about this from a uh, homeland security issue as well. Here we are on the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, this is about protecting the homeland. I'm going to be asking questions related to our capacity to produce vaccines, for example, uh, if and when uh, a vaccine is developed, uh, what sort of capacity is here in the United States. And if we're relying on China to produce uh, vaccines for us here in the United States, I suspect they'll use those vaccines for their own people first before they come to the United States. That would be uh, 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 
personally very rational and reasonable uh, expectation. So we have to make sure that we have the resources in our country to protect ourselves, and not only from naturally occurring uh, 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 pandemics, uh, but uh, actually, uh, Dr. Gernberg, we've talked about it from weaponization as well uh, in a different committee that I'm on, Emerging Threats and Capabilities. There's also the potential for bioweapons uh, to be used, uh, and we need to be prepared on, on, on all fronts. So I look forward to the conversation and uh, look forward to uh, moving forward on this important issue. Thanks, Senator Peters. Why don't we start with Dr. Gottlieb, and then we'll kind of alternate back and forth. these are working right now, but uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Ranking Member, I think they're working now. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today before you, and uh, thank you for submitting my, my full statement to the record. This is a deeply concerning uh, event, this novel coronavirus. Uh, we don't understand uh, its true severity at this point. We don't understand the transmissibility. I think we're going to learn a lot more information in the coming weeks as we start to see outbreaks emerge in other regions of the world that are going to provide better information than we've been able to get out of out of China. But the fear right now is that this could occupy that middle ground between contagion and virulence, where it's contagious enough to spread very efficiently around the world, but still virulent enough to cause a lot of death and suffering when it's distributed across a very large population. And I think one of the very instructive things right now that we should keep a very close eye on is the situation in Singapore, which is growing more and more concerning by the day. Um, I'd remind folks it's quite warm in Singapore right now, um, about 90 degrees at a high during the day, lows in the 70s. And um, while we would hope that the summer would be a backstop against propagation of coronaviruses, and it typically is, it might not be in this case. We have a very novel virus that's going to transfer more easily because people don't have any, any cross-immunity. Of the 50 cases that have been identified in Singapore, and they have an excellent system for doing tracking and tracing in these kinds of situations, um, eight are currently in the ICU. And so that, that is at least some indication of the potential severity of this. I want to focus my brief remarks uh, up front today on some of the supply chain issues that this situation exposes and draw from some of the work that I did previously at FDA as well as what we seem to be learning uh, in the setting of this current outbreak. Wuhan, in particular, in the Hubei province, was a center for production uh, of pharmaceutical ingredients, but not pharmaceutical ingredients that we typically think of when we think of the active pharmaceutical ingredients that go into manufacturing drugs and into what we call the fill-finishing product process, actually taking the, the raw ingredient of the drug product itself and putting it in a tablet or a capsule. Typically, a lot of the API is manufactured, some of it in China, a lot of it's manufactured in India, some of it in Europe and the U.S. The fill-finishing work, actually taking that active pharmaceutical ingredient and turning it into a capsule or a tablet, that's often done in the United States or in countries like Ireland. What goes on in China, the kind of production that they have, is actually making the starting materials for the active pharmaceutical ingredient. So the, the first chemicals that go into the API is oftentimes what's made in China. And in many cases, China is the sole source for that material. A lot of the uh, materials that were manufactured in Wuhan actually got shipped to India, where the Indian, Indian generic companies did the manufacturing of the active pharmaceutical ingredient. And what we're finding now is that in many cases, uh, China was the only supplier of these raw ingredients. And so what, we're, what we've identified through this episode is a critical choke point in the supply chain for pharmaceuticals and some critical pharmaceuticals, a lot of anti-infectives 
that are manufactured, generic anti-infectives that are manufactured in India, the starting ingredients that go into those those intermediate products um, of the anti-infectives are actually manufactured in China. And so it calls into question whether or not we have the right policies, I believe, in terms of how we look at potential disruptions in the supply chain, because our orientation historically has been focused on the finished product. We've required manufacturers historically to report to the FDA when there's shortages or near shortages of finished product. We have some insight into the manufacture of API, but on the whole, we aren't typically looking all the way down through the supply chain or requiring manufacturers to do that and report on what these critical choke points can be. And so it begs the question whether or not we should reconsider those policies. Um, and it's not just in the setting of pandemics where this can become a risk. It could be political upheaval. It could be political strife. Um, it could be situations, to your point, Mr. Chairman, where uh, countries try to nationalize supplies, where there's a critical supply and they hold on to enough supply to satisfy their local needs in the setting of a public health crisis before they ship ship outside their borders. And so just in closing, some things I think we can consider uh, going forward to try to address these kinds of contingencies and these kinds of risks to the supply chain that I believe this episode is exposing in real time. Um, we could work, first of all, work closely in the near term with manufacturers to try to get alternative supply for these chemicals uh, into the market. There's idle manufacturing capacity in, in India. These facilities can be converted fairly quickly. The starting ingredients for uh, pharmaceutical production doesn't need to be done under what we call good manufacturing practices. So do, it, you don't have to apply all the stringent oversight that you would to a finished drug product because the, the regulation on the finished drug product is what covers the drug ingredients. So the drug ingredients don't need to meet those standards as long as the finished drug product does. And that's a long way of saying we probably could do this quickly if we wanted to convert facilities and we had a real focus on where those choke points were and trying to mitigate them. I think longer term, um, we should think about when we ask manufacturers to focus on shortages of final products, also require them to report on the intermediate steps and intermediate ingredients that could also come into shortage that could create um, create a, a adverse public health outcome. We can require companies to uh, identify alternative supply for some of these products. We did that after 9-11, um, which uh, Dr. Gerberding probably remembers well, where we required manufacturers of critical products like insulin to identify how they would come up with alternative uh, supply of that product should their core facility go down um, because of either an intentional or an un unintentional uh, act. We could do the same thing with some of these critical facilities that supply raw ingredients for these drug products where it's, in many cases, sole source. Um, and we also, finally, in closing, just need to focus on getting more manufacturing back into the U.S. And this is where this committee has been very helpful. When I was at the agency making investments in continuous manufacturing and other kinds of um, high-tech, low-labor footprints for manufacturing pharmaceutical ingredients and pharmaceutical products that are the kinds of facilities that, if you're a manufacturer, you would want to locate as close as possible um, to your site of sale. And so your know, continuous manufacturing pr um, platform really lends itself to being domesticated here in the U.S. as opposed to doing it in another part of the world. And so these are just some ideas, um, some of which I worked on when I was at the agency, some of which I've thought about since leaving. But I'd be um, delighted for the opportunity to work with the committee on these and other, uh, other ideas on how we can mitigate some of the risks that have been identified in this current episode. Thanks.
Well, thank you, Dr. Gottlieb, and I should have pointed out that you were the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. Why don't we move next to Dr. Julie Gerberding. Uh, Dr. Gerberding was former director of the Center for Disease Control during the Bush administration from 2002 to 2009. Doctor. Thank you. <clears throat> it's an honor and uh, an important opportunity to provide context and information, so I really appreciate um, the ability to have this conversation. I'm really here wearing three hats. One is as the chief patient officer at Merck. Um, like many multinational companies, we have lots of people working in China right now, and of course we're concerned about our own employees. But as Dr. Gottlieb has said, we're also worried about maintaining the supply of medicines and vaccines to the people in China who need them, but also sustaining the supply chain across the board. I'm also wearing my hat as the co-chair of the Commission on Global Health Security, which recently um, published this report, which includes recommendations to Congress about what we could do to end the cycle of complacency and crisis that we continuously circulate through as these infectious diseases emerge. This is a commission that includes uh, bipartisan members of both houses, so we have a uh, uh, very involved Congress in this issue. Um, and then finally, I'm wearing my hat as the former CDC director who uh, had the privilege of serving our country during the SARS outbreak, so I've had some firsthand experience with um, the first coronavirus that emerged, but also lived through West Nile, uh, monkeypox, avian influenza, and a number of other infectious disease outbreaks, and worked very hard um, across the entire government to try to improve our preparedness for an influenza pandemic with lots of exercises and advanced capability development. So I'm sobered to be watching this situation unfold today, and it's a little bit of a deja vu all over again. Uh, I thought I would just comment on um, kind of the big picture of how uh, we generally approach global outbreaks like this. Uh, the first step is the detection. And in this case, I think we're fortunate that the outbreak was observed and reported and information was shared very early in the process compared to the situation with SARS where several months went before we were aware of what was going on. So that's, that's a, a, a positive improvement. The second step is to contain the virus at its source. And I don't think there's been, probably in human history, a more dramatic effort to try to contain a virus than what's going on right now in China. Uh, the number of people who are on lockdown, the scope and magnitude of the population involvement in the quarantine and social distancing procedures is, in, in my view, completely unprecedented. And the question to us is, will it work? Can you really uh, keep this virus under control? We obviously know there's spillover into several of the provinces in China and several countries around the world. We're so far um, magnifying sustained person-to-person -person transmission has not been documented, but I think we have a lot to learn, and certainly the experience on the cruise ship in Japan is telling us how transmissible this can be among people who are in a confined area. So we're very concerned about the prospects for long-term containment. If we can't contain it, um, I think we need to be prepared for what are we going to do to try to slow down the spread. Slowing down spread is important because if we have a lot of cases all at once, we simply don't have the surge capacity to manage that in our healthcare environment or in any of the related services that would be necessary. 
So slowing down means working hard to identify the people who are infected and isolating them in, in a place where they can't infect other people and having available gloves and masks and the isolation materials, which is also part of the sl- supply chain that we have some significant vulnerabilities in. But slowing down also can involve social distancing. And by that I mean um, in instructing people to avoid large crowds, early school closures so that children are not um, transmitting in the uh, opportunities of person-to-person and droplet transmission that occur among young kids in school, and, and a variety of other measures that were employed in uh, the 1918 pandemic, for example. Um, these measures alone are not likely to prevent community spread, but when taken as a cluster of interventions, um, we, we like to use the Swiss cheese analogy. If you hold up a piece of Swiss cheese, there are a lot of holes in it, but if you stack them on top of one another, you can end up with a pretty effective barrier. And I think that's, that's the process of slowing down until such time as we have a vaccine or countermeasures that, that can be helpful in that. Um, so I think you know, where we are in the United States today is we're observing uh, a clustered um, outbreak of a significant scale in Asia. Um, we do not have that situation in the United States today, so we're very alert. I don't think we're alarmed at this point, but we need to be leaning into what will the next step be if we can't contain it. And I think that's why this uh, conversation that we're having today is so prescient, because we will need congressional support and uh, investment to make that a feasible opportunity. So I think I'll just stop there, and um, we can come back to some specifics about transmission, which we've provided to you in kind of this summary comparison of various viruses. Well, thank you, Doctor. I think we'll go next to Dr. Luciana Borio. Uh, Dr. Borio is former National Security Council Director for Medical and Biodefense Preparedness and Acting Chief Scientist for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Uh, Dr. Borio. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Chairman Johnson and Ranking Member Peters and members of the committee. Uh, okay. Is this better? Okay. This one is working better. Thank you. Um, I'm Dr. Borio, as you mentioned. Uh, I work for NQTEL, which is a non-for-profit strategic investment firm that tailors innovative technology solutions to support the mission of the U.S. national security community. But previously, I served in uh, U.S. government positions and have been involved in uh, response to many public health emergencies. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today. Uh, You've heard about the numbers uh, of the trajectory of this epidemic, but we all know that the numbers both inside and outside of China are likely much, much larger. Uh, There are some places where we now have significant transportation hubs to China that have not reported any cases yet, either because they don't have adequate surveillance systems or don't have access to diagnostic tests or are not looking. So, um, and even though there's a lot we don't know about this virus yet, as Dr. Gottlieb and Gerberding mentioned, the features are very concerning for a pandemic and global spread. Um, so even though we've seen most of this impact today in China and Wuhan, and the citizens are suffering a tremendous amount, its impact will be felt globally. Um, I want to stress that even though we don't know how lethal this virus is, it's pretty clear that it's sufficiently lethal to stress severely the healthcare systems because of the lack of surge capacity that we have today to care 
large influx of patients with acute and serious respiratory diseases. So I'd like to speak a little bit about uh, some progress we've made since 2001 because there's been very significant progress. We are much better prepared today than we were back in 2001. And I want to acknowledge the work of Congress to um, help us prepare because a lot of the progress would not have been possible without the laws that were passed over the years to provide the executive branch with very many vital authorities to perform its duties, whether it's been establishment of the BioShield Fund or the establishment of of BARDA, which supports the private sector in developing countermeasures, emergencies authorizations authorities for the FDA. There are many, many others that proved vital for our current state of preparedness. And I, um, over the years, it's very clear, too, that the federal response enterprise that comprise many agencies, but including the CDC, DNIH, and the FDA, are stronger than ever. The coordination and communication and collaboration and resource sharing, um, the ability to get things done is stronger than ever. And in an optimistic note, I think it's fair to say that the science has advanced to a point where we now can actually aim for development, evaluation, and the deployment of countermeasures in time to maybe impact the course trajectory of a novel outbreak. In the past, we always, the efforts were designed to protect from subsequent outbreaks, but now the goal really is to, to impact the current one. And you've heard how the NIH is moving very quickly to develop a vaccine. The CDC moved very quickly to develop diagnostic tests. So there's been progress. Now, I'd like to say that we have fallen short in some very key areas, and they can't be overlooked going forward. One has been the lack of prioritization for diagnostic tests, and they are one of the most critical components of outbreak management and control, and they're necessary for even clinical trials for vaccines. So we can't afford to deprioritize these vital vital tools for outbreak preparedness response surveillance. Uh, as Dr. Gerberding uh, said, you know, we have the healthcare system is not ready for care of sick patients. So we have neglected our healthcare system preparedness. Much needs to be done in the public health arena, but more progress has been done at the state and local level of public health than we have achieved in the healthcare sector. And I love medical countermeasures, I love therapeutics and specific therapeutics, but we have to remember that they are. Um, they are an incremental benefit to delivery of supportive medical care. Without that foundation, those countermeasures are not going to be useful. We need to be able to first and foremost take care of patients. Uh, And lastly, as Dr. Uh, Gottlieb uh, spoke about, we do not have sufficiently protected our supply chain of essential medicines and medical equipment. And that needs to change going forward. So I do think that we have made some progress, but we need to brace ourselves from very some difficult uh, weeks to months to come. Uh, I believe that we're going to see a lot more cases in the United States in the near future. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge the work of the committee to call, calling for the establishment of the National Biodefense Strategy in 2017 in the NDAA, at your suggestion. Uh, it's been proven very important to help coordinate uh, the federal government's response. And uh, I don't want to leave uh, this opportunity without recognizing the staff at the CDC, my former colleagues at the FDA, at DHS, at CBP, and other federal agencies who I know are working around the clock to protect Americans from harm and from this epidemic. Thank you.
Thank you, Doctor. Again, I just want to encourage everybody to get the mic as close as possible and speak loudly. Uh, let's switch over to the, the GAO now. We have uh, uh, Ms. Nikki Clowers, who's the Managing Director for GAO's health care team. Ms. Clowers. Thank you, Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Peters, and members of the committee. Uh, thank you for having me here today to talk about GAO's infectious preparedness, uh, infectious disease preparedness work. Today I want to share four key lessons from our past work on outbreaks as we consider the nation's current preparedness for in response to the 2019 coronavirus. First, planning and coordination is critical. Although HHS is the lead federal agency for public health and medical preparedness, multiple other federal agencies, such as DOD and DHS, play an important role with state and local agencies on the front line. And of course, in today's global environment with mobile populations, coordination between countries is a must. Effective preparedness and response requires advanced planning, such as joint exercises among these entities. Second, and related to planning and coordination, entities must understand theirs and others' roles and responsibilities. Who is responsible for communicating with the public? What is the contingency plan if a key entity's ability to respond is limited? How can an entity fulfill its obligation despite these limitations? Answers to these and many other questions must be known and understood by all to ensure effective preparedness and response. And I would note that these are related to the issues that have been brought up by other witnesses about the supply chain and our reliance on drug and supplies from other countries. We've talked a lot about drugs so far, but it's also the supplies, personal protective equipment. What happens if those are limited and where do we get those supplies from? Third, clear and consistent communication is essential. With the number of entities involved in preparedness and response, it is important that the government speak with one voice to avoid confusion and frustration. The lack of clear and consistent communication can also create expectation gaps, like we saw when the amount of vaccine available for the H1N1 vaccine influence in 2009 did not meet pub the public's expectation. Finally, responding to the coronavirus cannot distract us from continuing to prepare for tomorrow's threat. We need to prepare for and respond to the coronavirus, but we also must continue to prepare for other public health threats, including efforts to develop needed medical countermeasures. Developing these countermeasures requires sustained attention to overcome inherent challenges, such as the high failure rate for the development of most drugs, vaccines, and diagnostic devices. Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, this concludes my prepared statement. I look forward to today's discussion. Thank you, Ms. Clowers. Our last but not least, we have Dr. Asha George. Dr. George is Executive Director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, formerly known as the Blue Ribbon Panel. Uh, Dr. George. Sorry, Senator. I'm moving this closer. Um, Chairman, thank you very much for the opportunity to come here today, Ranking Member Peters and the rest of the committee. Uh, the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense uh, has appeared before this committee before, and uh, I think it's an important point to make because it's obvious that uh, biodefense is a homeland security issue. It's not just something that's relegated to the healthcare and public health uh, arenas. 
Um, as we uh, approach this novel coronavirus situation now, uh, I think I'll, I'll leave the uh, healthcare and medical commentary to my colleagues and just focus a little bit right now on uh, what's happening with Homeland Security. I think it's important to note that uh, the Coronavirus Task Force does, in fact, have Homeland Security uh, on it. Um, somebody from the Department of Homeland Security. But you will note that the Homeland Security Advisor is not a member of that uh, task force. Now, the White House can do and arrange however the White House wants to. Um, but what that means is that that person from the Department of Homeland Security is the representative for Homeland Security interests uh, and needs to uh, address that at a level that wouldn't be the same as what would happen if the Homeland Security Advisor was involved. Additionally, um, Homeland, as, as you've seen thus far, has had some important roles to play. CBP and TSA have been critical in working with CDC in, try, in terms of trying to screen people and uh, shuttle airplanes in particular directions. But other parts of the department have been involved as well. Uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, for example, has been very clear about the offices that they have in China and the need to close those down. Uh, but they understand that uh, illness can have an impact not just there, where people are trying to immigrate perhaps here to the United States, but also vice versa with people being sick here and trying to uh, move around the, the world. In addition, the Coast Guard has uh, issued a Maritime Safety Information Bulletin. Uh, and I think uh, these these issues or these activities on the part of the Coast Guard, CBP, ICE, and so forth, these are, these are activities that are not necessarily new activities. Many of them have long, long hundreds of years of responsibilities for public health um, that have to do with customs, that have to do with protecting our ports of entry. And they're simply executing those right now as they, as they should. Uh, other parts of the department, such as FEMA and uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Administration or Agency, uh, they too have some responsibilities. Um, I would hope that right now they are doing what Nikki suggested. They should be leaning forward right now. Uh, we don't necessarily need to uh, have all of the states declaring emergencies and applying for emergency assistance under the Stafford Act, but FEMA does have guidance that uh, that would enable that if that was necessary. They should be making sure everybody understands that at the state and local level, and they should be trying to figure out how that might work when HHS uh, is already providing some um, assistance uh, to begin with. Um, as far as infrastructure protection is concerned, uh, you know, we have to be worried about the worst-case scenario. It is important for Homeland to study what's happening in China, use that as a scenario for the worst-case scenario here in the United States, and then understand what impact that has on infrastructure in particular. It's going to be more than just a workforce management issue. Um, the Office of Infrastructure Protection has studied this and addressed it in the past with pandemic influenza, uh, and I surely hope that they are dusting off some of those plans and thoughts and uh, looking to apply here again. Um, other than that, I think that I would just uh, end with, with uh, a suggestion to the committee. Um, there are expectations in legislation that still, you know, abound. Um, from back from the Homeland Security Act of 2002 uh, and, and coming forward, in which 
this committee and others directed the Department of Homeland Security to take upon themselves some responsibilities for health-related public health issues. Um, with the reorganization to create the Office of the of Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction, uh, there's a little confusion there now with the Chief Medical Officer and the Management Directorate, but uh, things like the National Biosurveillance Integration System still in the CWMD office. It's a little confusing. It's a little um, unclear, even within the department, who should be doing what and how. Um, I believe that the committee should take a look at, uh, at that, but in particular in the context of what's going on with novel coronavirus. It's something that probably needs to be fixed sooner than later. Um, and especially if we're going to assume now that the nation is going to have to deal with biological events uh, sooner than later. Something for you to do, to think about. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor. And I, I definitely remember the Blue Ribbon Study Panel uh, testifying for a committee. Actually, Senator Carper and I uh, met with the Vice President because your primary, your, your number one recommendation is we need to put somebody in charge of these things. That's a prevalent problem across a host of issues and problem areas that, you know, who's going to be in charge. Uh, we haven't worked that out. Uh, I think that's, that remains, a, to, from my standpoint, a, a, a top priority. Um, I, you know, Dr. Gerberding, I think you supplied this uh, sheet for us. I, we got an acronym now. It's COVID-19. Exactly. Um, but as I'm looking at period of infectivity uh, versus seasonal flu, 1918, SARS, MERS, I think what's, from my standpoint, not being a doctor, most is concerning about uh, COVID-19 is now we're hearing it's about a 24-day uh, contagious period, uh, incubation period, when people are just asymptomatic. Uh, does that tell us something about this virus? You know, and I also, let's get it on the table. There is all kinds of news stories going about uh, in Wuhan. They had certain facilities there. Is this... Uh, you know, something escaped from a lab. Can, can you just kind of discuss what we know? Uh, if there are some issues you can lay to rest, let's lay those things to rest today. Thank you. Uh, one point I would like to make is that although this seems like it's been in the news for quite a while, these are actually early days in terms of studying the outbreak. One of the things that disease detectives are doing right now is literally going door to door, finding a case, understanding where that person was exposed, how many people were they in contact, and what are the actual transmission um, frequencies. So it takes time to do that kind of shoe leather epidemiology that has to be done. So it doesn't surprise me that we have some uncertainty around these numbers, and we will continue to do that. Different people are observing different populations. What we see on the cruise ship is going to be different than what we might see in a, in a crowded hospital situation with someone who's profoundly ill and not properly isolated. So a lot of information is emerging and makes it really hard to make predictions or to make any firm statements about what we can expect here. But I, I am concerned about this virus for three reasons. First of all, 
Um, we don't know if the tip of the iceberg is really the most severely ill patients who get admitted to the hospital, but that the majority of the iceberg is transmission that's going around people with mild illness or even asymptomatic illness. That's profoundly important, obviously, but at this moment in time, we don't really know what proportion of the total universe of coronavirus infection is among those most sick people. So we could be having much more transmission, but those people aren't being tested. On the other hand, um, this does appear to be a very virulent virus with a fatality rate that's significantly higher than what we see with seasonal influenza, as I pointed out on this chart. So given that situation, um, I think we have to be concerned that even if most people aren't very ill, there is going to be a significant impact on on the overall population. And it does appear that vulnerable older people and perhaps young children are are certainly not immune to this. And most of the severe disease is among um, populations of people who have underlying disease. That's true, just seasonal flu as well. So then it's just on the spectrum of how virulent this really is and how deadly, correct? That, That is exactly right. I'm reading all kinds of things. Um, One of the reports I read was that uh, they attempted to develop a vaccine for SARS and they were uh, not successful. Is that true? Did we ever develop a successful vaccine for SARS? This is an important uh, perspective for the committee, I believe, and that is that when we have an outbreak like SARS, there's a great deal of investment in doing something quickly, like developing a vaccine or a medicine. But SARS was contained pretty quickly. 8,000 cases um, is a pretty small outbreak on the global scale, and the money went away. And so the investment in bringing those vaccines all the way to the finish line was not made. So the work was promising but incomplete. And certainly we don't have a SARS vaccine in the freezer today. But um, I think we all recognize that. Is it because we stopped working on it, or is it because there's just something inherent in that virus that makes it very difficult to produce a vaccine? I think it's because the work was not completed. Okay. Well, good. That that makes me feel better as opposed to something inherent. Um, Dr. Gottlieb, do you have an explanation of why these precursors are only made in China? You know, from from my standpoint, again, former manufacturer, where there's a very labor-intensive product, I can understand that. I I wouldn't think producing precursors for drugs would be a very labor-intensive as a result of, you know, a fit for uh, a low-labor country like, a low-cost labor country like China. Why don't we maintain that here? A lot of the um, a lot of the API and the chemical precursors are manufactured outside the U.S. because the two biggest components in terms of the cost of production are the labor inputs, number one, and the second biggest component are the energy inputs to producing API. But, you know, it does beg the question with low-cost energy available in the United States, you might be better off putting one of these facilities next to a shale plant uh, in Texas. Uh, so I think that there's an opportunity to try to re-domesticate more of this manufacturing here in the U.S. as the um, labor inputs start to diminish with different kinds of manufacturing approaches. And that's why Congress appropriated significant resources to the Food and Drug Administration in the last couple of years to try to invest in converting more of the industry to continuous manufacturing platforms on a premise that those are high-tech, low-labor, 
high-energy input platforms are the kind of thing you might want to locate in downtown Boston as opposed to Mumbai, India. So with that kind of a platform, I think we could see more manufacturing come back to the U.S. Well, as a manufacturer myself supplying the medical field, I know one in our ISO certification is always, what's, what's your backup? What, what happens if something happens at your plant? Where can we get the supplies? It, it is actually quite shopping, shocking to me that we have allowed this to occur just within our manufacturing base and ISO certification, much less um, would a potential solution to this be with the FDA approval on a drug is so that people prove that there are multiple uh, suppliers for the precursors? We do that right. We do that right now for certain products. So if you have a, a critical product where you know we they, we couldn't sustain from a public health standpoint a supply disruption, the agency requires risk mitigation plans so that manufacturers have to identify what the alternative supply would be and try to maintain some supply. And there are companies that literally have redundant facilities mothballed, able to be stood up to supply certain critical products. Uh, nitric oxide gas is an example. Um, and so you could you could expand those risk management plans to encompass more components of the supply chain and identification of these critical choke points. The manufacturers might not have full insight into it as well. They might not know that there's a sole source supplier, but they could ferret out that information. The agency working with them can identify more of these choke points. I know part of the whole anti-vaccine movement, uh, I think they had an effect in terms of how many vaccine manufacturers are in the U.S., you know, just the whole litigious society we have. Is that also a factor here or is that not a factor? Well, we, we made a concerted effort um, from a public health and national security standpoint to try to create domestic manufacturing capacity for vaccines and create um, some redundant capacity in the United States, including a national uh, strategic chicken stockpile um, for the production of uh, influenza vaccines. So we've tried to convert more of that industry to con to um, cell-based manufacturing platforms and actually invested in uh, building up some of those platforms here in the U.S., and Dr. Gerberding was instrumental in some of those efforts. Um, it's fallen off the radar in recent years. I think there hasn't been as much emphasis on trying to get those kinds of facilities into the U.S. And I'll just close by saying this is really critical because in the setting of a pandemic flu, uh, where a lot of these uh, vaccines are manufactured ex-U.S., the, the rational behavior of another country is going to be to make sure that they can supply their local population before they fulfill contracts to the United States. Well, this ought to be a huge wake-up call for our country in terms of, you know, ha having those ca manufacturing capabilities here in America. So uh, I hope we heed it. Uh, Senator Peters. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, it is a uh, uh, call. In fact, we, uh, the Minority Side, did a report on drug shortages that came out just at the end of uh, last year. Uh, and in hospitals that we've talked to, it's interesting, in one hospital, when we were talking about the report in Michigan, was saying every week uh, they have to get together and determine which drugs will be in shortage this week that they won't be able to get in an American hospital, a top-flight American hospital. And then if they have those shortages and folks uh, need the medicines, uh, then they will go to a more expensive medicine that is not available in a low-cost generic, for example, and yet of questionable increase of, of clinical benefit, uh, but costs a whole lot more money. There's a significant problem, particularly with some of the, the drugs, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, uh, dealing with anti-infection, things that are mass-produced uh, and generic. And it looked at from a supply chain, to your point, too, uh, Mr. Chairman, is that what we have in this country is that we have uh, manufacturing capability for the, the very high-priced uh, drugs on patents that are obviously making a lot of money for the drug companies, so that's manufactured here. But then as they go off into the generic world, then it gets really competitive, and it gets more and more competitive, and then that all gets offshore, and we have very low-cost drugs that, that 
don't make a whole lot of money for anybody, and those are the ones that tend to be in a, in a shortage situation. So it's almost like a barbell. We've got very high-priced drugs, and we've got extremely low-priced drugs, and nothing in the middle, and a lot of those low-priced drugs are related to the 80% of the precursors that underlie so much of the necessary medicines but may not be very expensive because they're not the ones uh, on, uh, on patent right now. And so uh, how, do, how do we deal with that? Part of it is some of these, low, to, to Dr. Gottlieb, uh, some of this deals with the government actually getting information. I think you mentioned this uh, in your opening as to the supply of these drugs, the sources. We just don't have a good handle on that. I think there's a dearth of information that we're getting as to where these shortages could occur and, and where those chalked, uh, uh, choke points are. Is that accurate? And do you have some ideas of how we could fix that? I think that's right, Senator. I think, you know, getting better information about where some of these critical junctures are is important, but it's only going to be sufficient if we can try to couple with some incentives to get manufacturing back into these spaces and get redundant manufacturing, because we're not going to be able to mandate um, a solution here. I mean, the problem, I, I always said that uh, there's a lot of drugs that cost too much, and I think we'd agree on that. There's some drugs that cost too little, and with a lot of these steroparenteral, meaning injectable generic drugs, and that's really the category that goes in and out of shortage, the sterile injectable drugs, we've driven down reimbursement to levels where they, they sit, the reimbursement levels sit at slightly above cost of goods. That's okay if you're developing a small molecule pill drug where the manufacturing complexity is relatively straightforward. But when, when you're dealing with a complex drug like a sterile injectable drug where you want there to be constant investments in upgrading manufacturing, making sure the products are, are subject to stringent GMP requirements, and you're allowing a margin that's slightly above cost of goods, um, it's hard to get the kinds of investments in manufacturing that you need. And so what you've seen in these industries is you've seen consolidation because the reimbursement's small. So the way you make up for the margin is you produce at very big scale. So you have a handful of consolidated manufacturers that have been underinvesting in their manufacturing over time. So when something goes wrong and a facility shuts down, you can create a shortage from a single facility shutdown. Um, so I think we need to think about how to identify these these um, choke points, how do we identify where things can go awry, and then thinking about how to change reimbursement schemes to drive incentives back into these markets to make it profitable um, to develop these drugs. We're getting a lot of these drugs at very low prices. That's very good for consumers until there's a shortage. Right. The, uh, and it's not just uh, drugs. It's also medical supplies. I think, uh, as Clarence, you mentioned that as well, the broad, broad uh, um, suite of products that you need, like masks and, and gloves that are necessary. In fact, I understand the third largest uh, import uh, from China to the United States are medical supplies and, and drug-related uh, issues. So uh, given what's happening in China, there's going to be pretty big disruption, potentially, uh, in that supply chain, as that's where we get most of these supplies. So we can see shortages in things like masks and gloves. Any of the panelists want to comment on concerns that we may have uh, related to what's happening in China for well, the supply chain? I'll just broaden that out quickly. I, um, and uh, Dr. Gerberding can speak to this, too, because we've stockpiled a lot of personal protective equipment in the, in the strategic stockpile for precisely these kinds of challenges. I think we're likely to see some potential challenges going forward if the supply doesn't get online in China is that a lot of components of complex medical devices are also manufactured in China. So the implantable defibrillator might not be made in China, but, but key components are sole-sourced so, so in China. And when you look at a lot of the manufacturers, they, they have anywhere from a one- to three-month inventory on hand, including the drug manufacturers. And so I think if this extends we, – we, we're now a month into this a little bit longer where manufacturing has been shut down. 
this extends in China another month or two, I think we're going to start to see some shortages of critical components, not just the personal and protective equipment, but also sophisticated electronics that go into medical devices. I, I was also going to mention this, the stockpile, and that's one of the, the issues where Congress can play a role is continuing oversight in terms of the agency's uh, management of the stockpile uh, before outbreaks occur uh, during the sort of normal times, if you will, uh, in terms of are, are we um, stockpiling the right type of equipment. Um, I would also want to add on to the, the complexity uh, job that FDA has in overseeing uh, the manufacturing throughout the world. Uh, the inspection regime was really set up as a domestic inspection process. Um, over the last 20 years, as um, manufacturing of drugs and devices have moved offshore, it stretched their capabilities. Right now, I think it's estimated there's about 400 uh, drug manufacturers in, in China. So you can see where this could have the tentacles of this type of Outbreak. Not only the the equipment that you need to handle the the current outbreak, the uh, the medicines for other types of um, uh, chronic diseases or just your generic drugs that you take. What type of impacts when workers stop going to the factories to work? How will that impact uh, the delivery of those drugs? Well, I was just going to add um, the shortage that concerns me the most is the antibiotic issue, um, both just in terms of supplying the drugs that we might need, but also because when people have a coronavirus infection or in the hospital, they're very prone to develop additional drug-resistant bacterial infections on top of it, and we don't have the right antibiotics to treat those infections because uh, we have a different kind of market failure there and inability to pay for those drugs and incentivize manufacturers to create them. Um, Merck is one of the few companies that has an antibiotic pipeline, and we really struggle to maintain a, a prudent business model. And we've watched lots of small companies go out of business just in the last year because they can't uh, get the reimbursement for the innovation. So th in this context, that is really a really important part of the coronavirus response because often with influenza, that's what people die of, the bacterial infections that complicate the underlying disease. I appreciate that. Thank you. Just a quick, uh, quick uh, follow-up. I'm out of time. If it would be quick, Ms. Uh, Clowers. You mentioned uh, the, the foreign inspections and how the foreign manufacturing. The FDA has approximately 188 inspectors. Uh, only 12 are dedicated to foreign inspections, is my understanding. And with our dependence on drugs, that seems to be a pretty low level. I think that's a reference to the foreign cadre. There's also domestic inspectors that can play a role in the inspection process. But in general, the number of inspectors have declined. And as a result, we've seen uh, the um, ability of FDA to maintain uh, a number of inspections for uh, globally decrease in, in recent years. And we have ongoing work looking at uh, those issues in terms of FDA's uh, capacity, as well as the other challenges that they face um, conducting inspections overseas, um, whether it's the needed translators when they go on site, uh, to being able to find the firms. Um, we've, we've seen instances where they go out to inspect um, and they show up to a, a facility and the facility doesn't exist. Um, we, we also have um, situations um, in most foreign inspections that's pre-announced so the firm gets about three months' notice or more that FDA is coming to visit. And so you can imagine what type of maybe cleanup goes on during those three months. That's different from the domestic inspections where FDA could show up unannounced that day for an inspection. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, 
Can I comment briefly? Yeah, go ahead. The, you know, the, the, the challenge was, so um, the witness is, is right that a lot of the foreign inspections are conducted by domestic inspectors who will rotate into foreign inspection roles or, or inspect foreign facilities. It is. It was a challenge to recruit and retain people um, specifically into those foreign inspection posts, and so that's something that we need to address. Filling those jobs was um, was difficult. We're also facing a situation now where the inspectors are largely have been pulled out of China. Um, and so we need to think about, from a risk management standpoint, how do we now ensure um, the safety of American consumers for products that are coming in from China if inspectors aren't on the ground? So it might require us to rethink import sampling and re rely on that more, even though it's imperfect relative to inspections or changing the risk management plan that the agency adopts in terms of how it targets its oversight and focus more resources on products coming from China, given the fact that inspections are now being pulled out of that market. Thank you. I think this would be a good time for me to repeat my plea to my colleagues. We ought to take the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. And, you know, again, I've pointed out this statistic, but as best as I can determine, out of a $3.7 trillion spent on health care, it's about $500 billion on drugs. Even at a 20% after-tax rate of return, which is massive, that's only $100 billion out of 3.7. So on a bipartisan basis, as we beat up on the drug companies, and there are no doubt there are some abuses, and they should need to be addressed. Let's, under, let's put in perspective and understand a situation like this. We need pharmaceutical companies to be successful. We need to encourage manufacturing here in the United States. I mean, things like heparin are in shortage. It's ridiculous because we've driven any profit motivation. We've made it very risky to manufacture because the, the risks are high of uh, litigation. So we need to really recognize the root cause of this. But I'll get off my soapbox and go to Senator Hassan. She can get on hers. I'm trying to think of which soapbox to get on. But um, thank you, Mr. Chair and Ranking Member, for um, convening us all. And thank you to all the witnesses for sharing your expertise and your time with us today. Uh, Dr. Gerberding, I wanted to start with a question to you. And um, first of all, just thank you for many years of service to our country. Um, reflecting on your experience leading a number of public health agencies, I'd like to hear how you think we are doing this time with this, with respect to the coronavirus. Do you believe that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have sufficient staff and adequate flexible staffing policies to manage a public health emergency of this scale or larger? Well, thank you for that question. I'm watching, you know, from afar, so I'm not in the CDC right. Operations Center, and I don't have insight into what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis. But I have to say it makes me really proud of the CDC right. to see um, what they have been able to do so far. I think their communication is regularized. They're getting information out. They're working very closely with the state and local health departments, building out that whole front line. So in terms of performance in this context, I think they have a lot to be proud of. Um, in the broader view, I do feel like the CDC has, has suffered from what I refer to as the herky-jerky funding. Yeah. A problem occurs, a budget emerges on an emergency supplemental basis. When that emergency is gone, then that money is repurposed. That is not the way to maintain a continuous process of improvement in our overall preparedness. And it's not just about the CDC. That spills over into every state yeah. and city. So I, I, I urge a very close examination of the sustainability of the effort moving away from reactionary funding right. to something that creates a, a, a more solid and allows this kind of preparedness to continuously evolve over time. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder that you need to invest in the things that you hope you never need. Exactly. But you need to be ready for them. And that's something that I think we, we struggle with. I wanted to follow up on that. As I understand it, um, the United States was somewhat slow to confirm potential cases of the coronavirus, largely due to logistical challenges dealing with sample testing. What we were told in a couple of briefings we've had now is specifically the delay results from hospitals and doctor's offices having to ship and state health departments having to ship patient samples to the CDC to be tested instead of being able to send them to local public health labs. So now that the CDC has developed a portable diagnostic test, are there public-private partnerships that we could leverage in order to scale up the production and distribution of those tests if necessary so CDC can direct its focus to ongoing response efforts as the situation evolves? And Dr. Goberding and then Dr. Gottlieb, if you'd like to follow on. So, you know, when there's a new, um, a new infection of any sort, it does take a little bit of time to develop a test right. and perfect it, and then you have to prove its sensitivity and specificity and its actual performance before it can be released. Um, FDA has created provisions so that unlicensed tests can be made available to public health labs, but there are a number of quality steps that have to go on. So it doesn't happen as fast as I think people would have liked. And I, too, saw some of the reports of, you know, 36 hours to rule in or rule out infection, so it is a problem. I think the private-public partnerships ultimately do occur. That's the natural yeah. history of how these tests evolve. But in the early days, um, I think the most important thing is to just get the reagents made and get them out to the public health lab network yeah. um, where people are familiar with using the PCR tests, et cetera, and just deal with the crisis and then move into a more stable manufacturing platform. Okay. Dr. Godley. So um, CDC made in, in very efficient time, and it's a real testament to the efforts of the CDC and FDA, 200 test kits available to the laboratory response network. Each test kit can test for between 700 and 800 samples. If you assume that on a typical patient, you're going to be sending off multiple samples. You can still test for upwards of maybe 50,000 patients with the, with the tests that are made available. Those are just now being put in place. Um, there was a press release yesterday from the um, public health department in Illinois that they just stood up that test. And so uh, we're just beginning to get testing capacity in place. I think two things need to happen. Number one, we need to broaden the criteria of who gets tested. Right now, the criteria um, requires that you are either a recent traveler in China, from China or have been in touch with someone who's traveled to China or been in touch with someone who's been diagnosed with the disease. We really should be trying to test anyone who presents with an atypical severe pneumonia that's tests negative for the flu, negative for the multiplex test that currently tests for different viral forms of pneumonia. We should be looking for coronavirus. We should be trying to find it in the community. That's how we're going to spot small outbreaks and prevent them from becoming large outbreaks. The other thing that we need to try to develop um, in efficient fashion is a point-of-care diagnostic like we have for the flu, something that doesn't require a reference lab but can either be done in a Quest lab or some other kind of reference lab or perhaps can be done as a screening tool more at the point-of-care. So you think of a company called Cephi, it has a platform called Gene Expert that they use to test for all kinds of things, um, including it was, I think, adapted for Ebola as well. Um, one of these sort of point-of-care platforms to get these tests into the hands of physicians to broader scre broaden screening. That's how we're going to identify an outbreak in this country quickly. Okay. Well, thank you. And, Dr. Gottlieb, I wanted to follow up with you, too, on asking you to elaborate a bit on the role that the FDA 
plays during a public health emergency. Can you describe the FDA's process for allowing the use of unapproved medical devices and treatments during emergencies, known as the emergency use authorization, and why is it important in a public health emergency? My former FDA colleague, um, Dr. Borio, to comment on this as well. Sure. She headed up this program at FDA for the agency. But, uh, you know, the, the agency has now issued an EUA, an emergency use authorization, for the diagnostic test. That's how they were able to get it out. So it allows the agency to bypass some of the um, traditional steps that would have to be done that would, that would extend the development timeline. Um, the flip side of that, though, is that, at least with the diagnostics, there might have been companies capable of promulgating these tests as laboratory-developed tests uh, inside their own high-reference, um, their, their own reference laboratories, because the technology for doing this isn't that complex. But now that the EUA has been issued, companies are unable to promulgate laboratory-developed tests. Now they affirmatively need to come into the agency to ask for permission to put those tests into the market. Okay. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Gottlieb. And I'll, I'll say that um, the agencies, when I was there, and I, my understanding is still still the case, they are very proactive in a public health emergency with uh, reviewing things in real time as data are received, and they're very proactive in communicating to developers what is it that is expected. Yeah. And it really is a very streamlined validation process because there is an urgency of getting tests out there. Um, it, it is, however, important to have a certain comfort with the level of validation before these tests are being used because we don't want to be in a situation like we're seeing in China, for example, where there's a little bit of a concern about whether the results are actually accurate. So even though these tests are very routine and routinely used everywhere, they still require uh, some training and some validation. Uh, And lastly, I'll just say that I can't stress enough the importance of moving forward having a point-of-care diagnostic test Okay. We should not be having a relying on a send-out test in a public health emergency. It's not the way um, anything that changes the way physicians or clinicians are practicing in their, in their, with their patients makes the response less efficient. And the technology exists today, but these tests have had a very hard time in coming into the market because of the more systemic issues that we've discussed earlier. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So just for my colleagues here, there will be some votes being called. They're stacked. Um, by the way, we're under discussion about sitting at our desks on these stacked votes to make it more efficient. Well, hopefully we can get that accomplished. Uh, I'm going to stay here. Apparently my votes are not going to be necessary, so I'm going to keep the hearing going. All I'm going to ask of my colleagues, if you're going to go, and if you're going to come back, let me know, and we'll try and keep it going for you. But if you're going to leave for, for good, let us know that as well. Uh, Senator Carper. Thanks, thanks, Mr. Chair. I, I want to thank all of you, not just for coming here, not just for your testimony, not just for responding to us, but some of you we know pretty well, and it's good to see you. And for those that are here for the first time, welcome. And uh, thank you for what you do with your lives, and thank you for what you're doing to try to preserve a life here in this country and maybe around the world. Uh, my colleagues heard me uh, tell this story before, but when I was a brand-new governor-elect, I uh, remember meeting with a bunch of people who were giving me advice before I raised my right hand and took that oath of office. Uh, and uh, one, a very wise old Methodist minister from southern Delaware once said to me these words. He said, uh, Tom, just remember uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I said, would you say that again? <laughs> he said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
uh, we're covering a lot here. Our, we're an oversight committee. We have oversight over the whole federal government. There's a lot in our bailiwick. But to try to help us narrow down our responsibilities here on an oversight committee, the Homeland Security Committee, what we should be focusing on as we go into this. And, Nikki, would you just lead us off? Because we work a lot with GAO, as you know, and we're grateful for what, what your agency does. Well, thank you, Senator. Just be succinct. Yes, sir. Um, to, to pick up on the, the keep focused on the main thing, uh, one of the, the things I would stress is that we don't lose sight of tomorrow. Responding to the coronavirus today um, is very important, but there's other public health threats, and we can't be, get in a cycle, which we sometimes find ourselves in, is chasing the you know, disease X, what's, what's going on this month, and we lose sight of the routine preparedness that needs to occur, the funding of the routine preparedness, what you would consider routine. Um, that when we lose sight of that, then we get in this sort of never-ending cycle of, of, of chasing. Okay. Um, the other thing I would uh, would mention is we've already discussed is the reliance on uh, manufacturing overseas, and so I won't go into depth on that. Um, the other thing I would stress is just the important role that you play um, as a committee in providing oversight um, to the agencies, um, both before, during, and after an outbreak. The before, um, making sure that they are preparing, that they have the plans in place, that they know the roles and responsibilities. After, are they conducting the right, um, uh, conducting after action reports? We found that um, often after an outbreak occurs, it dies down, people want to walk away. A after action reports are not completed. Um, if they are, they're, um, they're delayed or they don't include all the participants. And we're missing an opportunity to learn. And then the last thing I would say is just what we've been talking about um, as well. Uh, there's a federal role to play in, in terms of creating a market for countermeasure development. Um, what kind of incentives can we put in place um, to um, draw manufacturers to develop needed countermeasures? Thank you. Thanks so much. Dr. Gerber, uh, Gerberding. Very, very succinct, please. The main thing. Right now in the U.S., I think the main thing is to exercise how we will sustain essential services if we begin to see sustained transmission in our communities. Um, essential services meaning health care, of course, but also all of the other homeland security services necessary to keep our society operational, our supply chains running, and civil um, civil civility among our citizens. Um, we, we've seen in uh, previous outbreaks, for example, um, with SARS, what happens in a community when those services are disrupted? And now is the time to exercise and make sure that we have a plan in place to, to do that if this does become worse. Thank you. Dr. Garland, good, good to see you. Thank you. The main thing, please, just succinctly. Modeling has shown that the, the time from first introduction um, in China, which was probably in November, to epidemic spread was about 10 weeks. If you think that cases were introduced into the U.S. undetected late December, early January, which is probably the case, statistically it's, it's quite probable, um, we're going to start to see those outbreaks emerge sometime in the next two to four weeks. I think that we should be leaning in very aggressively to try to broaden diagnostic screening right now, particularly in communities where there was a lot of immigration, where these outbreaks could emerge, to identify them early enough that they'll be small enough that we can intervene to pre prevent more epidemic spread in this country. Thanks so much. Dr. Royo, same question. What is the main thing? Yeah, so I think we need, to, we need to assume that... Just press your mic. This one. I left it on. We we need to we have to, we have to assume that we're going to see a lot more cases here, and I really worry about the healthcare system preparedness and ability to take care of patients. 
And I think we cannot afford to lose a minute in getting this healthcare system as ready as we can before the influx of patients arrive. All right, thanks. Dr. George. Senator, um, I think that uh, the committee should be looking at what all of the departments are doing right now uh, to address coronavirus, not just for employee safety, but in terms of all of their responsibilities. All of the cabinet uh, departments and many independent agencies have responsibilities for biodefense, and those should carry forward now. Um, We shouldn't be waiting around. They shouldn't be waiting around until things get much worse to lean forward, dust off their plans, and do what they need to, uh, even, even if it means that they have to stand back down because things didn't get as bad as they could. Okay, thanks. Who is the lead agency responsible for coordinating the development of a vaccine in a pandemic? I don't care who takes that on, but what is the, uh, who is the lead agency responsible for coordinating the development of a vaccine in a pandemic? Who would like to take that? Just very briefly. NIH. Okay, that was pretty brief. Can you be more brief? <laughs> <laughs> what lessons did U.S. agencies and our foreign counterparts uh, learn from formulating vaccines and treatments for SARS, Ebola, and other global health threats? I, I can take the question from the perspective of, of Ebola um, because I work for the company that has the licensed Ebola vaccine that's currently being used in the DRC. I think the biggest lesson overall was the incredible number of partnerships that have to emerge rapidly and effectively to bring a product rapidly through clinical testing for safety um, all of the kinds of permits that have to happen to move it f- across borders, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing requirement for all kinds of agencies of government and civil society, and that's just getting it into the clinical development. Once we want to get it into the country to actually use it, it brings up a whole other round, including the importance of the frontline health workers. And lastly, one quick one. Can the reported 12 to 18-month timeline for developing vaccines and treatments be shortened safely and effectively? That could be either a yes or no. And if it is a yes, then how? Just very briefly. I think the Ebola uh, virus vaccine development proved that work that started in Canada right after the turn of the century um, 13 years before the Ebola emerged really was required to get us to the point where from that point forward we could sprint. Now we have a new entity called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which is a private-public partnership funded by countries, by Gates, by Welcome, by other uh, civil societies that is investing in building products and vaccines through phase 2B so that they're in the freezer when one of these frightening pathogens does emerge, and that will speed up our ability to act quickly. I'll just add briefly, you know, doing a doing a clinical development and clinical trial in the setting of an outbreak of a deadly pathogen is exceedingly difficult, and that's something that we could be planning for right now. How are we going to construct clinical trials of products that we want to test? We, we're, they're standing up a, a randomized trial of an antiviral drug in in China right now that was stood up very quickly. You know, you, the question is, are we going to be able to gather information from that that could inform a regulatory decision here in the U.S. if we ultimately want to license that product for this uh, for this disease? So thinking through how to stand up that infrastructure and get that in place in a setting of a public health crisis can greatly hasten the development timeline. And that's what we were able to do with the Ebola vaccine, where we were able to stand up a randomized trial in Western Africa to get to turn over the data card on that on that product very quickly. Our thanks to all of you. Thank you so much. Senator Scott. 
Me? Okay. All right. First off, thanks to each of you for um, what you've done in your prior jobs and what you're doing now. There's been reports that um, the coronavirus might may live up to nine days on on a surface. Um, I've got to call into the CDC to get their feedback. But do you have any any views on that and whether that's possible? That's relevant in case contaminated objects prove to be a source of transmission, which would be highly unlikely and not an epidemiologic factor in most cases of respiratory virus transmission. You have to distinguish between finding the virus, meaning maybe there's DNA there, dead or alive, versus the virus is alive and present in sufficient quantities to be infectious. Those are two very different things. So I, I personally am not focused on environmental contamination as a source of this. I think it's much more likely to be droplet and potentially aerosols, and that's kind of what we're seeing on the ship um, in, in, in the Japanese harbor. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else have a different view? I mean, the, 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 data, with, the data with coronaviruses shows typically it's probably a couple of hours um, where you can get transmission from what we call fomites, which is a, a, a contaminated surface, touching it and touching your face. There's been some studies that have looked at transfer of the virus under really ideal circumstances that are unlikely to exist in nature that shows that it could be several days. I think for uh, most purposes, we should assume that the virus has the capacity to live on a surface for a couple of hours, so you could get transferred from what we call a fomite. Um, that's why I think one of the roots of a, um, transmission that we should be very concerned about is touching. Um, it's, it's not necessarily wearing face masks that's going to provide the best protection for individuals. It's going to be washing your hands and, and using an alcohol sanitizer appropriately. So we, we import quite a few things from China, ag products, food products, processed food, seafood, grains, even live animals. Are we doing, do you think we're doing all the right things with regard to uh, reviewing what comes in and, and deciding what shouldn't be coming in until we get more, more information about how this coronavirus, uh, the, uh, the transmission of it? I think from a regulatory standpoint, Senator, that I, I, my focus wouldn't necessarily be on the virus um, cross-contaminating an inanimate object and coming in, uh, so a ship package. I, I, I would have a very low level of concern around that as a route of transmission. I think the bigger concern right now with respect to the imports coming in from China is, is just the lack of oversight uh, of, of manufacturing. We pulled out our own inspectors from from the country, you have to believe that their regulatory apparatus is stretched right now and not providing the same level of oversight. And I think it does behoove us to think of how we're going to backstop that with other kinds of approaches like greater import sampling. It's not a perfect substitute for having inspectors on the ground, but it is a substitute. And so we need to think about how we adapt the regulatory process and take a, a different risk-based approach to looking at some of these products that are still coming in that consumers here in the U.S. still need. And are the, those inspectors are what agencies have inspectors over there? Well, I know FDA does. I mean, I'm sure other agencies as well have inspectors um, in in China, but not necessarily looking, looking over FDA regulated products. Um, the F, as as best I know, based on the public reporting, um, the U.S. FDA inspectors were recalled from the country um, based on the new travel guides from the State Department, and so we don't have them on the ground. Okay. What? Do, um, the Taiwan was not allowed, is not allowed, I guess, to be a member of the WHO. So what, uh, by, by 
Communist China not allowing Taiwan to be a member, how has that impacted their ability to defend themselves against coronavirus, which they're a lot closer to it than we are? Well, you know, Taiwan hasn't been part of some of the working groups at the WHO. Um, there's been a question for our ambassador, Andrew Bremberg, over there. But um, I think it's highly unfortunate that China has continued to um, try to assert their political prerogatives in the setting of this in the setting of this crisis in terms of how they treated Taiwan. So a lot of people have asked me, um, why don't we see reporting from Taiwan? It's because the Chinese are baking the Taiwanese numbers into their own estimates because they don't see it as an independent nation. So that's certainly been unfortunate. We can add to a long list of things I think the Chinese government has done here that's made our response more difficult, um, The probably the most significant of which was not admitting that there was human-to-human transmission until January 20th, when the same day that they disclosed they had 14 healthcare workers that were infected. What do you, what do you, uh, how comfortable are you with the numbers that are coming out of China? I mean, you, you read reports that it's, they're, they're significantly underreporting, um, the number of cases and, um, there's a lot of antidotes that the number of deaths are way, way, way higher. What, that mean, do you, do you have any feel for that? Well, I'll, I'll turn to Dr. Gerberding as well. I don't, I don't trust the, the reporting in China, and I also believe that the China, the China numbers reflect um, the most severe cases. So we're getting a, a skewed um, view of, of the case fatality rate and how severe this is. Um, I suspect that if you were able to bake in all the mild and moderate cases or asymptomatic cases, the case fatality rate would go down. It could still be quite high. I mean, even a case fatality rate of 0.2 or 0.5 could be catastrophic if this is highly, highly contagious and spreads around the world. But I almost believe that the issues of the reporting from China um, aren't as relevant right now to how we perceive this this potential ep- this epidemic and potential pandemic, because we now have uh, experience in Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong, that's going to tell us a lot more about how this virus is going to spread around the world. Um, we now know this is epidemic in China, and whether it continues to grow, it doesn't. Um, that's not going to affect as much whether or not this becomes pandemic as what's happening in those other nations right now where the cases have already been exported. I will say, though, if China does take the brakes off of some of the measures that they've taken, they seem to be making some noises about that because they're worried about the economic impact, that could hasten the rate at which more cases get exported out of China. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I want to thank the panel for being here. Uh, your experience in past public health um, emergencies and crises is um, exceptional um, and I think important to understanding how we should respond to the coronavirus. However, the American people also, Mr. Chairman, need to hear from the officials who are currently responsible for addressing this. And um, we need a public hearing with current government officials as soon as possible. It is critical to my state of California. I have spoken with um, some of the current officials and asked them why they are not here today. And they did not have a, they, they did not have a good response for why they are not. In fact, um, they went on to say, well, we have to take time to prepare talking points. The American people deserve them to be here this morning. Um, that being said, um, Dr. Uh, Gerberding, Thank you for your service. Uh, The coronavirus outbreak uh, demonstrates, obviously, how important it is that we respond and be prepared to respond to a public health threat. Uh, Yet, just this week, President Trump released the fiscal year 2021 budget that cuts funding for the CDC and NIH, which you have mentioned would be the first, um, the the first responder or or most responsible for, for dealing with a pandemic. And so these are obviously critical agencies um, that must respond and need to respond to the coronavirus. 
So this is one in a long line of attacks on our country's public health system that we've seen over the past three years, from trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act to restricting the way science can inform government decisions to slashing our investments in global health. So my question to you, as a a former CDC director and especially during the SARS epidemic, you must recognize, obviously, the importance of a strong public health system to guard against infectious disease threats. And so... As Congress considers the next fiscal cycle, what public health programs would you prioritize to ensure that our country is prepared to address an outbreak and this outbreak and any future outbreaks? Thank you. Thank you for your question. It's a question that's been asked for many years, and it's frustrating to have to answer it um, for many years. I, I uh, we'll put on my hat as the chair of the CSIS Commission because that's basically the question we asked as well. Where should investments be made to improve our global health security? And I can share this with you. Other members of Congress have participated in its development. But specifically with respect to the CDC, I think the whole system of public health has been left behind as more and more of our health resources have gone into care delivery and we've underinvested in prevention and and preemptive care, including the preparedness dimension of that. I also think that it is a small world, and we need to have a cadre of people who are trained to be deployed to places like the DRC when there's an outbreak there so that we can lend our expertise and our competency in safe ways to be helpful in uh, containment when the problem is somewhere else. Uh, the third issue really relates to what Dr. Gottlieb was uh, was discussing, and that has to do with our laboratory network. Um, across the public health system, we depend on the laboratory response network in situations like this, and they have made dramatic st- steps over the past 10 years or so, but there's much more to be done there, and we've got to keep up with the state of the science. And I totally agree with point-of-care diagnostics for emergencies. So we have a lot of work Um, to do to really build up the public health system. And the great thing about it is it's not just sitting there idly waiting for an outbreak. We can use it for ordinary care as well. So it has a dual purpose. And I think that those are investments that make sense. So to your point that you have made these recommendations before, to what do you attribute the lack of progress? I think we have a general mindset that undervalues health promotion and prevention and include preparedness in that dimension. When something happens, as a nation, we're very competent at making an emergency investment and stepping up in the crisis to get miraculous things accomplished, but we don't sustain it. It's complacency, crisis, complacency, crisis. But but what you're describing goes to the very core of the, 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 the point of the public health model, which tells us prevention... Promotion is the smartest and cheapest way. Absolutely. And then if the sniffles take on early intervention, but if we're dealing with it in the emergency room, it's too late and it's too expensive. So this is not a new concept. And I'm I'm just at a loss to understand why we've not made progress then. Well, I'd love to follow up with you in a deeper conversation than that because it's, you know, it's a complicated um, cultural issue in our country, but I think it also has to do with just generally the tendency to have wishful thinking that a bad thing isn't going to happen. Individuals do that um, when they smoke cigarettes or do things that they know are bad for their health, but I think as a society we have a similar challenge. 
Can you talk with me, um, based on your experience and, and your thoughts about how we can be better, um, what is the system in place, because I'm having a difficult time getting it, even when I've talked to current government officials, about uh, the, the system for federal funding and how it is distributed to state and local governments who, in the current crisis, the coronavirus, and in past um, circumstances, it, it's just it's not happening as it should. And there seems to be a, a distribution of um, responsibility, but not a distribution of resources to the state and local governments. I don't have any insight into how that's happening with the coronavirus situation, so I can't respond in a contemporaneous way. Um, generally, the funding mechanism waits for emergency supplemental to come, and then it's distributed according to uh, population and other parameters across the public health system. Uh, so it is um, not, I don't think that is the optimal solution. I think we need to have these systems and this support in place. A major vulnerability, in my opinion, it gets back to what we were discussing earlier, and that is that our health system has so little surge capacity in it, and hospitals aren't going to build that um, without investment. We have to support hospital uh, surge capability. Because in my state, for example, there are large counties like Los Angeles and smaller counties like San Benito that just simply don't have the resources that are necessary to address the issue. And they're, they're sitting there waiting for reimbursement with no clear indication of when they're going to get it and, and, and what will be reimbursed. And their work includes a number of things, but all of the work is being done by local officials, not federal officials. At the end of the day, it's the front line. I, I am a, a licensed physician in your state and work at San Francisco General Hospital, so I'm well aware of what you're talking about. Thank you for your work. Senator, you. may I add something about on the funding? Please. Um, there are three uh, core uh, programs that fund state and local activities, uh, two of which are CDC, one is ASPR, and we've looked at the funding over time. So um, from about 2003 to, two, to 2017, each year that those programs in total, uh, starting in 2003, awarded about $1.4 billion, it's decreased to about $1 billion now. Mm-hmm. And so what we've heard from state and local officials, they really do then rely on the supplemental funding right. uh, that's provided. And about that time frame, it's been $2.9 billion for Zika, Ebola, and other types of diseases. Uh, the concerns with the supplemental uh um, funding, while it does enable the surge capacity that's needed, often the timing right. is off, and so it's too late. Right. Uh, the other uh, mechanism that's been used is reprogram- reprogramming, which we've heard the Secretary recently a- a- announce. Um, again, that gets the, the money out quick as needed, um, but again, what we've heard from state and local officials is that that's essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul. It takes money away from the routine preparedness and then it delays and disrupts the preparations at that level. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Rosen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for um, uh, being here today for the work that you've done. I want to agree with you and Senator Harris that we need the current administration here, uh, not just to address today's issue in coronavirus, but our future preparedness and our readiness. Um, it's very, very important. And... You know, we talk a lot about our large population centers when we have a potential pandemic like this one. But our community hospitals and clinics, just like you alluded to, they are on the front lines, particularly those in our underserved urban areas, in our remote and rural areas. Nevada, we have 300,000, about 10% of our population. 
living in frontier and remote rural areas. And so um, we need guidance and we need staff that's well-trained to have the right equipment ahead of time. So for Dr. Gerberding and Dr. Borio, um, what federal investments, where can we target these most effectively to ensure our local our local rural providers have what they need to respond, not just to a large-scale epidemic, but to mass casualty, a natural disaster. Um, those also have an impact on public health and, and the system to respond. As we said um, a minute ago, the front line is local. Um, I don't think it's realistic for every health facility and every provider to be fully up to speed on, you know, every emerging infection that could occur. So we have to think about a hub-and-spoke model. Um, what is most important for every provider is to have the ability to be quickly updated if there's something new and emerging so that the training system is in place, the information system can quickly get information out to people, and they know what to do when the first patient appears in the emergency room with a suspicious diagnosis or a a, something that's suspicious for an emerging infectious disease threat, and then that we have the capacity to get advice and refer or transport the person to a facility that has the more advanced infection control and care, just like we do for other complex medical problems. But the problem is reaching the front line in a reliable and systematic way, and that requires a system of, of ongoing education and training that is incomplete, as you've pointed out. I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about the um, medicine. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just add that the, I agree that the, the tiered approach, because... Um, that's how most of complex medical delivery occurs anyway, right? So not every hospital can do the most complex um, procedures. But the funding has been approximately ballpark $250 million a year, and it's been filtered through uh, state public health uh, systems. And this funding is very necessary for planning purposes, but it's just not sufficient to really achieve preparedness. And we need to find a way to go from planning to actual preparedness. And... Um, it's going to require more expectations, I think, on the part of the federal government, coupled with resources to fulfill those expectations. But we can't stress enough how important that preparedness at the hospital level is. And do you think that we can potentiate using the telemedicine capabilities between our urban hospitals that are very well equipped to our rural providers um, that are out there? How, how do you think that we could best put some funding into that mechanism to be sure that out in smaller communities we have some of those issues taken care of? So, yes. so one of the today's system doesn't leverage the most innovative technology that exists in the marketplace. And telemedicine is, uh, it's hard to imagine that we're going to achieve the level of preparedness that we need to in the absence of exploiting more of those technologies that include telemedicine and telehealth. We see some progress in that regard, some increasing uptake uh, in the medical care system, but a lot more could be done to, support, to leverage those technologies for preparedness. So I think that uh, needs to be part of the funding stream perhaps as yeah. well? Absolutely. Thank you. I yield back. Could I just add one thing? Um, because 
when we're having this conversation about how do we build the cascade of preparedness, I want to go back in time to the efforts that were made when I was still at the CDC. Secretary Mike Levitt at the department took on the issue of pandemic preparedness, heart and soul. We went to every cabinet secretary in government and sat with the book about the 1918 pandemic, outlined sections of it that were relevant, and had conversations about what their cabinet could be responsible for and contribute. Secretary Levitt also took those of us in the department who were involved to every state in the nation and met with the governor, the head of education, faith-based, you name it, the community of uh, experts uh, assembled in every state and then had an exercise um, about what they would need to do in their state. And in many states, that exercise cascaded down into cities. So it brought attention to exactly what you're talking about. It's local. And if we don't build that preparedness into the system, we've kind of lost the game. We need to bring FEMA into some of these conversations, too, as we talk about whether it's a mass, ca- mass casualty, a natural disaster, a hurricane, an earthquake, something else that can happen that uh, – could leave some of our communities unprepared um, in the same way as for this. So maybe FEMA needs to come into this conversation training as well? Absolutely. It, it, it will require all agencies uh, at federal, state, and local, as well as the private sector. Um, and that was one of the reasons why we called for a uh, national biodefense strategy, which was issued in 2018. And for the first time, does lay out a, a process for inter- interwide inter- uh, prize-wide strategy that looks at all the threats in an integrated way because we can't have the fragmentation um, both of um, understanding, trying to collect information and integrating um, information, prioritizing risks that must be done in a strategic fashion. Thank you. Senator Hawley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of you for being here. I think a version of this question may have been asked, but I'd like to hear the answer with my own uh, two ears. So, Ms. Clowers, I'll direct it to you, but anybody is, is welcome to answer. Uh, when it comes to the number of cases that, that China is reporting, uh, what's our assessment of the accuracy of these reports, both in terms of infections and deaths, and uh, where do we think, how do we rate these statistics in terms of trustworthiness? I would agree with the other witnesses in, in terms of we should look at those numbers with some um, some questions uh, in terms of the reliability um, of both the number of deaths as well as the um, reproductive index. Does anybody go ahead? Yeah, yeah go ahead, I would, Doctor. I would say um, one could worry about obfuscation of information, but I think more to the point, um, it's who's being tested. And if the asymptomatic or mildly ill people are not coming forward or not being tested, then we're obviously missing the rest of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a, that's a critical point that um, we're probably overestimating the case fatality rate right now because we're only testing more significant illness. And, and it, it's probably the case that a lot of people who have mild and moderate illness just aren't even presenting to the system anymore now that they've locked down the entire Hubei province. I, I You know, the... The issue right now, the questions that we, we need to grapple with right now are, it's clear this is epidemic throughout China. Um, is it becoming epidemic in other parts of China? So the reporting in the other provinces is important, what's happening in Beijing. But even more important than that, it's going to be what's happening in Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong. Why don't we have any cases in Malaysia? There's got to be imported cases into Malaysia. They're just not finding them. What's happening in Western Africa? There's got to be imported cases into Africa, given all the connections 
And what's happening here? Um, there's probably spread that we're just not detecting yet. And, you know, I think that the, the situation in China, we're, we're going to quickly have learned as much as we're going to learn from China, and we're going to start to focus our attention on these other regions where it's becoming epidemic, or at least there is sustained community transmission, and where the reporting is a lot better, um, including Singapore, which has done exquisite uh, reporting on their cases. What do we know about the the rate of reported infections in terms of the the curve, the derivative curve, if you like? I mean, it's, is it still bending up at a pretty fast pace? Right now, the um, a true epi curve, exactly what you're asking for, has not really been created. What we do see are the number of reported cases, but we don't see the curve in terms of when they started. So that's the frustration that I have. I can't be an epidemiologist without an epidemic curve. Um, but I think just kind of crudely looking at the numbers as they've climbed up day to day, we're still in the upslope of the curve for sure. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Dr. Brown. Diagnostic test kits to test everybody who may need to be tested. So we may see a certain number of reporting because it's all.